We got a week until the real holiday time off starts. A lot of news to pack in before the end of the year. And we're talking about the news on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Laura Johnston, Layla Tassi, and Lisa Garvin. We've got a lot to pack in this week, don't we? You think all the newsmakers will be benevolent and get all their work done now <laughs> and not leave it to the holiday period when we're short-staffed? <laughs> not a chance. We'll have to see. I mean, the legislature went home, right? It doesn't mean anything. (laughs) (laughs) I still think they'll be dropping stuff, putting out the trash at the last minute. We'll have to see. (laughs) And and we got the Supreme Court decision coming on the gerrymandering. I mean, that'll be a Mm -hmm. big one when that hits. So, and Justin Bibbs going to have to start naming some people to work in his administration. He starts in a couple of weeks. All right, let's begin. Why are the people behind the shareholders' lawsuit against First Energy? Because of how corrupt its business practices were and how it torpedoed stock prices? So intent on bringing Ohio Governor Mike DeWine's office into the proceedings. Laura, they just keep filing stuff to try and get documents from Mike DeWine and John Houston. What do you think they're looking for? I'm not sure, but I'm glad that we're looking at them every time. I mean, they're subpoenaing them. We can't do that. So it's the second time in a month that DeWine, Lieutenant Governor John Houston, and dozens of other entities and statehouse officials are appearing in these filings in U.S. District Court in Akron. So this is the shareholders lawsuit. It accuses the utilities board of directors of failing to provide oversight and prevent this scandal. And attorneys say that Houston is believed to have knowledge of the underlying factual allegations of the docs of the lawsuit. So the documents are seeking any correspondence between DeWine and Houston that they might have had with these two nonprofits at the center of the case. Those are Generation Now and Partners for Progress. And court documents, authorities said Generation Now collected the bribes from First Energy and its subsidiaries to pass House Bill 6, which we all know is the billion dollar bailout of these aging nuclear plants and then documents say first energy used partners for progress to funnel the money in the scheme i feel like when you use the word nonprofit, you think of like do-gooders but not in this case and so it's the defendants in the lawsuit that are inserting dewine into the case and all i can think is if if you're under attack then you're going to be saying hey let's bring in everybody here because everybody plays a part in the problem here well, we should point out neither John Houston nor Mike DeWine True. have been accused of anything or implicated of anything no. in any way. Mike DeWine, though, did appoint Randazzo as the head of the PUCO, and that guy is implicated in every every way possible. And DeWine appointed him, even though critics said this guy's an insider. And, you know, Randazzo is First Energy has admitted giving him bribes. So Randazzo is not charged with anything, but doesn't look good for him. I do wonder if there is some kind of correspondence that they think is there. Have they heard something, or is this just a wild fishing expedition? DeWine in Houston, of course, would have you believe it's a wild fishing expedition. But lawyers generally have an idea of what they're looking for. These are really wide, though. It's not like they're asking for something very specific. And the spokesman said the request is so far-reaching that it's not singling out the government. Gov, sorry, governor. So, the, and this is, you know, the case for for John Adams in in Akron, like I said. So this is totally separate from the criminal case. And so I don't know if we'll find out more information out of this one than in the other, at least when it comes to you know people who are still in power. 
Well, if there is anything, it will come about at the very time that DeWine is running for re-election. 2022 is his re-election campaign year, so this could become a factor in that. We'll have to see what we get, or if the, if the judge even grants the request to get the record. Sometimes judges don't like fishing expeditions. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Max Miller, the Donald Trump-backed candidate for Congress in Northeast Ohio, had what appears to be a big role in the events leading to the January 6th insurrection in Washington, D.C., which looks more and more like a coup attempt by the former president. Why does Congress want to talk to Max Miller as part of the January 6th investigation, Lisa? Well, it looks like Mr. Miller may have been in the room where it happened. Uh, they There was a letter sent from Ooh, the... Good line, good yeah. line. <laughs> the, the letter was sent from the Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack. They sent a letter um, asking about more information on his presence at a January 4th meeting with Trump and others in the Oval Office private dining room. Apparently, they were planning the rally there. Uh, Miller as you may recall, was a senior White House advisor at the time for, for Donald Trump. He also contacted the National Park Service and the Department of the Interior on January 1st about the permitting process for using, you know, the Washington Monument in the mall is all national park land. And they also asked him to supply documents and give a desp- deposition on these and other matters. Um, he is one of six involved in or witnessed the planning of events that led up to January 6th. And in response, he did send a statement out, Mr. Miller. He said that he accepts the subpoena, but he will defend his rights and his constituents' rights. And if he's elected to Congress, he will vote to disband the partisan committee. And he's Ohioans are tired of D.C. witch hunts, so he fell back on the Trump tropes and defending himself. But this is going to be a very interesting deposition, I'm sure. Well, there's more and more information coming out that's pretty frightening. Playbooks for how to stage the coup. And all of these people were involved in conversations leading up to it. Uh, this this investigation committee is getting somewhere. Uh, and the, the information they have is more and more incriminating. So Max Miller will be running for Congress at the very time his name is being bandied about in what could have been an effort to thwart the will of the voters. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What's the early take on the legacy of Cleveland Mayor Frank Jackson? We'll be doing a special year-end episode on this topic to get granular about it. But where's some of the overarching themes of his 16 years as mayor? Lalo, our former retired colleague Mark Vosberg, put together a nice piece that we published over the weekend online and in print going through a lot of that. What are the high points? He did. And, you know, Vosberg, he covered City Hall alongside you, Chris, when, when Jackson was on city council and when he served as council president. And later, after Mark became an editor, he oversaw the coverage of Jackson's administration at City Hall. So his career really overlaps in a big way with Jackson's, which gave him this really unique perspective on the man. And, and as Mark points out, Jackson has been such a private person for so much of his time in public service that much about him really remains a mystery. And yet there are some things that we do know about this very enigmatic leader. There are character traits that have really shown themselves time and again through his words and deeds. And, you know, to begin, you know, he's really honest. 
16 years in office without a scandal or public corruption accusation is, is quite rare in this day and age. And part of what has kept his moral compass aligned is the fact that he entered politics simply to serve his community, not to feed his ego. He's from the central neighborhood, and he basically has never left it except to go serve in the Vietnam War. So doing what's right for the least of us, as Frank Jackson says, has been his guiding light throughout his career. But of course, you know, there's the most often heard criticism of Jackson, that he's loyal to a fault, that sometimes progress is stunted by the fact that he's given these powerful leadership positions to people who are not that competent, uh, at least not competent enough to affect change. And, and yet they have been Jackson devotees and their reward for that is job security at City Hall. But, you know, Mark does a terrific job of walking us through Jackson's many accomplishments during his 16 years in office. He he welcomed the Department of Justice to investigate police use of force in Cleveland in 2013 after that awful police chase and shooting that ended in East Cleveland with, you know, killed two unarmed people. And of course, after the death of Tamir Rice, which Jackson has said was his worst day as mayor. So whether you believe the resulting federal consent decree has yielded the kind of results we need here is another matter. But but Jackson has welcomed that reform. And he, he also managed to persuade the Republican-led General Assembly to pass legislation that enabled the Cleveland plan for transforming schools that really allowed the district to retain high-performing teachers during layoffs, share property taxes with some charter schools, and pay teachers based on performance, special skills and duties, rather than simply you know their, their, how long they've been working there. And again, how successful it's been is debatable, but, but Jackson took that bold step, and he and the and the school CEO, Eric Gordon, have been able to persuade voters to approve levies and renewals during his time in office, even during a pandemic when times were tough for everybody. Um, so so those were, uh, you know, some of the highlights. And, um, and, of course, Jackson has had his share of bad ideas, turning trash into pellets that could be burned as fuel. That was pretty dumb. Well, that was a good idea. <laughs> it just wasn't practical. But if they could have worked I mean, it, it was a good depends, idea. It just... I, I mean, well, yeah. Well, I mean, that's, you know... Uh, Anything, if it worked, would be a good idea. But if it doesn't work, it's a dumb idea. <laughs> so um... the, the, the overarching, though, kind of idea that Mark had was that for people that say Jackson had no vision, he did have a vision. What he did with schools, what he did with police, what he did with some of his other things. What struck me is you were editing Mark, which was the only <laughs> time in your career that you get to edit him uh... after he'd edited you for most of your reporting years. Um, I went back and read his uh, the first inaugural address when he first became mayor back in 06. Mm -hmm. And I was struck by how much of what he said then remained his plan all the way to the end. I mean, he That's talked about education. He talked about the least of us. And he never veered for that. And that that was the, the thing. He may not have had the vision that others would have wanted him to have for, you know, helping businesses or, or doing the kind of development they want. His vision was about the people he represented, which is why he got elected in such big numbers. One of the things that we don't talk about a lot is his his last reelection four years ago came after the shooting in East Cleveland, mm -hmm. came after police killed Tamir Rice. And you've got to think in just about any other city, that would have been the end of the mayor. If that goes on, that was such a devastating thing. But people, I think, did respect that who he was and what he tried to do as a result of that. And he still won handily in his final reelection run. It's a good piece by Mark. Really thorough.
Yeah, it it is. And, and, you know, I think that as Jackson leaves office, the things that he's leaving undone might be might be what haunts him in the future. I mean, most notably, I think, is that he just could not seem to get a handle on on the violence epidemic and all the social problems that gave rise to it. I mean, he really prioritized community benefits agreements when he's in office and and that, you know, that those would bring prosperity to Clevelanders. And he really tried to create a position in City Hall to create to, to work on generating opportunities for young people to keep them from the streets. But the problem is just so vast. And um, I can imagine after all the time he's spent working on that issue and how close that is to, to, to him, how that must be must feel kind of disappointing. Yeah, like I said, we'll be talking about a lot of this stuff in more detail in a special episode we publish over the holidays. Just wanted to talk about it today because of Mark's story. Yeah. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We keep talking about how dead in the water the Cleveland wind turbine project is, but to quote the Wizard of Oz, is it not merely dead, Laura, but most sincerely dead? No, I don't think so. I, I mean, I think... <laughs> You're crazy. I, I mean, it's not... It, okay, I, so I thought about your analogy here, and I think it's been killed in myriad ways, but it's not dead and buried yet. And to use another analogy, it's like the bad guy in a horror movie, and I don't think that body is going to gasp back to life, but I'm still watching through my fingers. Um, not that the Turbine Project <laughs> is a bad guy, but it's had a lot of controversy over the years. So... Um, the latest step is that Republicans in the House of Representatives have rejected the idea of imposing this t- small surcharge on Northeast Ohio customers of First Energy that would be used to support this wind turbine project in the lake. When the issue came up in the Republican caucus last week, I think it was Friday, it did not receive anywhere close to support necessary to pass. And the idea is like, why would we charge people above market rate in order to support some energy? To which a Democrat had a great response was like, isn't that what we were doing with HB6? So we'll prop up nuclear plants, but we won't prop up wind. So if you if they don't they don't have the money though they right now have all the approvals they need they've been talking about this for a decade but they don't have the money to make it happen yeah and i think that the legislators actually have some legitimate concerns about some of the environmental aspects and the idea that when these things finally finish their useful life there's really no way to remove them there's no money being set aside to to get rid of them. It, what's sad is, is this has been an interesting ride as the technology mm-hmm. was developed and we read about how they'd work and what they were doing to make them work. It, it was kind of exciting to think that we could have a, a renewable form of energy, but there were a lot of people in opposition, uh, recreational boaters and people that like the vision of the lake and people who worry about the birds And it just seemed like it never got the full traction it needed to be supported. It's it's never been a slam dunk. Like, it's never been like, this is a great idea, 100%. I mean, there are so many issues from the birds and the bats, which they were saying about at first, the regulatory commission said they weren't going to be able to operate at night because of that, but they got past that. People said they didn't study the issue enough. And then this is just a demonstration project that we've been talking about. And it would be, I think, six turbines about eight miles off the lake, kind of in front of Lakewood. But the the pro- problem that most people had with it is it if it succeeded, then they thought it'd be a sure bet for a thousand wind turbines to come in and it wouldn't just be a demonstration project and they'd have their whole lake cluttered up with wind turbines that they weren't sure if they were ever going to cause you know, damage to the lake, whether it'd be toxic chemicals from the base, which seems a little far 
fetched, but like, you know, just rotting pieces of metal are there. I, I, we only have one great lake and I just, it's an experiment, right? Well, actually there are five great lakes. I, we that... as Ohio have one great lake. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I understand there are more of them. Yeah. It's just, it, it seems like I, I get it. The people are still thinking, well, maybe, maybe this thing is dead. And, and really it raises the idea. If we can't close on a big idea in Cleveland, what, what is the future? I mean, this was a huge investment of time and money. The people that worked on this did so in good faith. They really wanted to make Cleveland an example for the world about how you can do this in fresh water. And it's not going to happen. And so what does it say for us that we can't make the big idea happen? You're listening to Today in Ohio. In the continuing battle of the city of Cleveland versus dollar stores, the city just lost around. What happened and what's the greater issue here, Layla? I was <laughs> stunned in the story by how many dollar stores are in Cleveland. I know. So so to take a step back, Cleveland City Council at some point last year passed a moratorium at dollar stores so officials could decide whether to add restrictions to the city's zoning code. But before that moratorium took effect, developers had submitted their plans to build this particular Dollar General on Memphis Avenue in the old Brooklyn neighborhood. And then the moratorium ended in November of 2020. But when the plans for for the Memphis Avenue Dollar General came up for review in September of 2020, the city's planning commission denied them, basically on the grounds that they had received feedback from, from community members who were against adding another dollar store within a mile of other dollar stores. I mean, the neighborhood basically, you know, was saturated with dollar stores, in other words. So the developer sued and last week won against the city. Common Pleas Judge Ashley Kilbane ruled that the city didn't have an adequate reason for denying the plans. There wasn't a legal justification. It was simply that they didn't like how the property would be used. So she told the city that the boards must approve the plans. As you said, you know, the larger discussion here is about where dollar stores stores are located and the concentration of them of the 107 stores within Cayuga County th- that includes you know Dollar Tree Dollar General Family Dollar Five Below and others 70 are in Cleveland many are in the city's east side neighborhoods in the southeast corner of the city and that's that's where some of the most impoverished uh, neighborhoods are so you know a lot of city officials uh, believe the the stores are crowding out mom and pop grocery stores they they say large chains that want to build in certain neighborhoods create food Food deserts that leave residents with few options to buy fresh food. And then they argue that the stores attract crime and are an eyesore because they just don't keep them up. They don't maintain them. So uh, interesting that that now they're being, you know, kind of forced to take on another dollar store in this particular neighborhood. But let me ask you, though, I, I mean, I remember back in the in the 90s and the aughts, they didn't like pager stores. And then it became the cell phone stores, which they thought were attracting a, a bad element and you had payday loan stores the payday but, loan stores that's really the one that, uh, that but, was but, a problem but, but the dollar stores sell stuff that people who are living in poverty want and can afford so i mean if if they weren't successful they wouldn't be there and they do carry a broad range of things yes why is it if there's demand for it why is it so bad to it's have a, them it's a great question to be honest with you i happen to like dollar stores <laughs> And I'm always amazed at the stuff that you can get there that Target charges a thousand percent more for. And I'm kind of surprised that community members are rejecting these businesses because their neighbors are shopping there. And I think that 
you know, it's a foregone conclusion that mom and pop grocery stores are a thing of the past. They're not coming back. And if they did, no one would shop there because their prices would be too high to cover their overhead. So, you know, and, and I don't know, are the mom and pop, you know, grocery stores doing a better job of upkeep and maintenance than the Dollar Trees? I, I don't know. I would argue that many of those mom and pop stores are eyesores, too, sometimes. And they probably, you know, I, I don't know. I, I just think, you know, where what is the real problem here? Uh, I, 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 dollar well, stores, the problem are, is they serve a we, need. <laughs> right. We have incredible poverty. And this is a, right. this is a way people combat poverty. So I, I'm a little bit surprised at it. I get it that the city wants to step back. But, you know, they have methods to make them keep up their stores. I know. And that's the thing. And housing department. If the maintenance is a problem, then the city should get on top of that no matter what kind of business it is. So, you know, I, I just um, it's it's stunning that this is what they're attacking now. The payday loans, that was a I mean, that was predatory. That was a completely right. different animal. But this this is a place where where people go to get some of their basics. And and it's much cheaper than shopping at the big box stores. I think to say that, you know, the mom and pops are getting pushed out. The, I don't know. It's because the, yeah. these stores meet a need. I've asked Eric Isaac, our real estate writer, to take a deeper look at this battle and exactly what's going on. So sometime, I don't think we'll get to it before the end of the year just because we're wrapping up the year, but I think we'll see it early next year. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Does it look more and more likely that the New York-based foundation behind the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductions will renege on the promise to Cleveland to hold the ceremony here every other year? Lisa, they're not saying it, but they're not saying they're going to stand behind that promise, which is causing many in Cleveland to think we're about to get the shaft. Yeah, I think we are. There's a whole lot of hemming and hawing going on. Apparently, there's there's a podcast called Who Cares About the Rock Hall? And uh, the Hall of Fame ceremony director, Joe Gallen, was a guest on this podcast. And he, I'm going to say in air quotes, confirmed that the uh, 2022 ceremony would be in Los Angeles. So that'd be next November. But he didn't say yes or no. He says, I can't say if it's for sure. Our plans could change. Well, why mention it if <laughs> if you're not sure? I mean, come on. Um, the New York-based Hall of Fame Foundation is totally mum on the subject. Uh, the last time we saw a Hall of Fame induction ceremony in L.A. was in 2013. And after that, they switched to it being to in New York and Cleveland every other year. So if it does move to L.A. next year, that means it will not return to Cleveland until 2024. Uh, local people, Dan Gilbert being one of them, um, you know, is saying that this is an economic impact of at least $36.5 million every time it is held in Cleveland. Not to mention that, you know, the good press that it gets and the media and Cleveland being showcased, you know, on national media. They also say this could go up to $50 million in economic impact for our city with hotels, shopping, dining attractions and so on and so forth but yeah this just this just angers me i mean why remove la and why bring it back they haven't said why they want to bring it back to la so you know you know tell us yes or no and why are you doing it don't leave us hanging well the other thing when you have a hall of fame in your midst you expect the ceremony to be in your midst that's what the football hall of fame does what the baseball hall of fame does pretty much every hall of fame the induction is there people don't travel around the country to get inducted into Cooperstown 
They go to Cooperstown. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is in Cleveland. And we finally got to the point where at least every other year we'd have the ceremony. And now these folks in New York who have no real ties to Cleveland, don't really care about Cleveland, are making the decision to yank it out. It's it's really a, a shot in the face of Cleveland. And, and what's sad is, is that the people locally who run the museum... I'm sure are hot about this, Mm -hmm. but they can't say anything because it's the foundation. And so they can't publicly excoriate them. But you can tell as you talk to Cleveland leaders, they're furious about this because we had a promise and it doesn't look like they're going to keep it up. They could. They could say every other year it'll be in Cleveland and in the off years it'll switch between New York and L.A. But it ought to be in Cleveland. Yeah, that's that's sad that they're. And, and it was interesting to see in this year's induction ceremony, you know, the exhibits were so much part of the, you know, I saw the ceremony in HBO and they showed, you know, people going in and enjoying the exhibits. You can't do that in New York and L.A. I mean, like you said, it doesn't make sense to hold it away from the physical Hall of Fame. And it's not like Cleveland can't put on a good party. We've proved that we had. I mean, in this this induction ceremony this year was one of the best in years. So, hmm. Yeah, I know. I know. It's a it's a sad state of affairs. And we're really when you break your word to a city like Cleveland, people remember you're listening to Today in Ohio. The influence of the United Way of Greater Cleveland has been waning as its workplace funding model has dissolved away. But how did the nonprofit demonstrate last week that it still has some muscle in the battle on poverty? Laura, they spent some money. Yep, they gave out $2.6 million in grants as part of the Community Hub for the Basic Needs Program. And to, that was to nonprofits throughout Northeast Ohio, 16 agency partners, and it provides money for two years beginning next year. So this hub is part of the new model for United Way that they're intem- attempting to defeat generational poverty. It's a change from the past philosophy where they would just kind of sprinkle money around to different nonprofits. Now it's focusing money on three pillars, the United Way 211 Call and Help Center, which has been flooded since the pandemic began, the Center for Excellence in Social Services, and strategic investments that really combat poverty and are aligned with economic mobility, health pathways, and housing stability. So some folks like um, the Spanish American Committee, Starting Point Towards Employment, YWCA, uh, they all got hundreds of thousands of dollars to help with their programs. So, Layla, we've talked in the past about the United Way and putting aside the 211 call center, Mm -hmm. which is a heroic effort they do. Lots of people call that and get help. It's one of the best services in all of Cleveland than it was before the pandemic. It was more used during the pandemic, uh, and the United Way should be saluted for hosting it. Sure. But the rest of this stuff, I mean, the United Way is always giving out big grants to nonprofits. Is this just a shuffling of the cards? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think that concentrating efforts is an important thing. You know, like Laura described it as a sprinkling out of, you know, the way it's, you, know, you can't sp- spread the peanut butter too thin to kind of d- decide which efforts are worth funding, what is most effective at, at combating poverty. That's an important strategy. Um, it, it is good to see, you know, the wheels turning in that direction now, don't you think? Well, I'm 
I mean, I feel like for a couple of years, they'd come into our editorial board every six months and tell True. us they were going to change their focus. And we're like, wait, didn't we, did we write this story? Yeah, already? right. Like, yeah, it has been a couple makes, years. What makes this different? But right. this final, the change has finally taken hold. And you've got to think that with the pandemic and everybody working from home in their corporate kind of business offices, this is more important than ever because you can't feel the same kind of peer pressure to give the United Way if you're not in an office and you're not hosting a pancake breakfast. You know, I just... I feel like their their fundraising model has got to have changed a lot. Yeah, and that that had dissolved away uh, before the pandemic. Most it's the the younger generation of employees, and pretty much that's now I'd say anybody under fifty doesn't respect getting their arm twisted at work to give mm-hmm. to the work chosen well, charity. People, and they want to give where they want to give. They don't want to give it to a bigger group that then decides where to put the money. Right. Right. Like, Right. That so that that model is has been all but obliterated, uh, and so the United Way's role can be as a facilitator and running that two one one helpline, which is vitally important. You're listening to today in Ohio. We're in the thick of the holiday season, but when we all come back from the celebrating in January, we'll be close on hosting the NBA All-Star Game in Cleveland in mid-February. Lisa, it's going to sneak up on us. What can we expect? Yeah, a whole lot of excitement. There's something about an NBA All-Star Game that draws celebrities and excitement like no other professional sport. Not sure why that is. But the uh, NBA All-Star Game is set for February 18th to 20th. Uh, A lot of things going on at the Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse but they're also having events at the Cleveland Public Auditorium, the Wolstein Center. They're expecting about 15,000 visitors and fans, about 1,000 media members. And Dan Gilbert with the Greater Cleveland Sports Commission is expecting spending to be north of $100 million while they're here. It's a huge thing on TV. It's seen in 200 countries, the All-Star Game. Like I said, it draws a lot of celebrities. And already in Cleveland, you know, local event spaces are pretty close to booked up now. So if people are planning late events for this all-star game, they might be out of luck trying to find the right venue. So yeah, a lot going on. There's going to be the rising star challenge. There's going to be dunking contest, three point contest tickets start at $200. You can buy packages up to $19,000 for, for VIPs. But yeah, it always brings a lot of excitement to the city. And of course we know how to host a party. Hey, Laura, we we were talking last week that unlike the draft, Mm -hmm. NFL draft, and when we had the MLB baseball all-star game, the there was a lot of family stuff. But in this, it doesn't feel like this is the kind of thing that people can bring their kids to as much as those other events were. I'm sure there will be some kids, but you're right. This doesn't have the same kind of family-friendly feel. The draft obviously had free family activities. And you know I take my kids to all of this stuff, right? We're not planning to go to the, all, the All-Star crossover, which is what it's the the thing in the wolf sorry the public auditorium is called and it's this idea of basketball and pop culture colliding and it, it's about the celebrity and the just the cult of personality and probably music and pop culture so it's not so much about like have a kid shoot a three-pointer or jump as high as lebron or measure yourself or something like that this is more about how the world reacts to basketball so, as, as Lisa said, we'll put on a big party, but it won't be for us. It'll be for a bunch of visitors. We'll do a lot of celebrity watching, and we'll see ourselves up in the lights in an international kind of focus. Yeah, we already started talking about who could be coming. Like, is Adele going to come? Because um, LeBron's age, she's dating LeBron's 
I think he's the agent, right? Rich Paul. I, I'm obviously not the the best <laughs> pop culture reporter on our staff, but um, <laughs> so we'll see what kind of shiny celebrities come to Cleveland, and and I think that's what's going to be so glitzy and glittery is mm-hmm. having I mean, almost kind of like a rock hall thing. And it's going to be happening right around the time of the Winter Olympics and right, the Super February Bowl. 20th. So there's going to be a lot of sports buzz going on in February, including right here in Cleveland. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. We'll be back Tuesday to talk some more about the news. Music.